Exodus chapter 12 is where we'll be. This is the um, fifth-ish, I think, uh, talk in the mini-series that we've been in called Down and Out that covers this portion of the narrative where God comes down into Egypt and leads the people out. Um, so we're going to read Exodus chapter 12. We'll finish this uh, mini-series next week. Um, and then Tim will preach the week after that. Are y'all excited that Tim will be back up here saying something at the end of this month? Um, I am. Uh, <laughs> um, so Exodus chapter 12, uh, once you're there, stand with me. Um, I'll give you a, uh, heads up. We're going to read this whole chapter. Um, there's no portion of this chapter that I could take out and separate it from the rest of the chapter. So we're going to read this whole chapter together, um, and I'll try to make up for that by preaching short. Um, then we'll take communion after this. Uh, so Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Um, by now God has done nine plagues, and here he's about to do the tenth, and he says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall take each, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I'm the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread on the first day. You shall remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what it's leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work will be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. I like how God keeps saying it over and over 
and over to get it clear in their minds. Do not do this. Do this. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You'll observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You'll say to them, it's a sacrifice to the, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did at midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, get out. Up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds also as you've said, and be gone. And when you're there, bless me too. Then the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we'll all be dead if they stay here. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. They think that's about 2 million people. And, And pay attention to this. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Israel was multi-ethnic from day one. This isn't a new idea. This, this has been God's idea from day one is to have a, a people from mixed, from all ethnicities, from all tribes, from all languages. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived uh, lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout the generations. We good? Still here? All right, last few verses. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner will eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. 
but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Um, let's title today, Don't Forget to Remember. Don't Forget to Remember. Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us today. Do, do what only you can do. Change us. Show us who you are. Make us who you want us to be. Amen. So there, um, as you've gone through life, there have been things that have been presented to you in pairs. Um, like at some point, your parents or another adult uh, presented socks to you in a pairs. They said there's a left sock and a right sock. You get them in a pair. Um, some of you, you're introduced to peanut butter and jelly in a pair. They said when you have this one, you have the other, they're in a pair. Some of you were introduced right and left in a pair. There's right and there's left. They come in a pair. Some of you were hopefully introduced to soap and water in a pair. When you have water, you have soap. You, you get them in a pair. They, they introduced those things to you in a pair because they were meant to go together. Hold a pin there. Doesn't it seem kind of interesting that the whole flow of this narrative was almost interrupted by these instructions about how to have a dinner? So you got Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all action after action. God does this play. God does that play. God does this play. God does that play. Right before the last play, God spends almost a chapter talking about how to have a dinner. Doesn't seem interesting. I don't think what's happening is that the flow's getting interrupted. I think that we're being presented these events and this meal as a pair because they're meant to go together. They're inextricable. You can't separate the Passover meal from these events that we just read. This is why I read the whole text, because God and Moses both make it a, make a very deliberate attempt and, and, and make an effort to give you the meal and the events in a pair. God, before he goes on with the Passover events, he says, Moses, I'm going to do this thing in a few hours. But before I do this, this is how I want you to observe this meal. Moses, as he's rewriting it and telling the people, he says, we're going to get there. But before we get there, I've got to tell you about this meal. They're meant to go together. I think the reason that God married the two things is because the meal was a means to remember the event. It says every time you gather once a year, you gather around this table and have this meal. And what it is, it's it's a memorial for what I did. God, he deeply desires that his people remember what he did to deliver them. What did he do to deliver them? Well, we we saw it in chapter 12. He he stepped down into Egypt. He walked through the streets of the of the neighborhoods of Egypt. He passed through the houses of Egypt. He struck down the firstborns in all of the houses. He passed over all of the houses that had blood. And after he did all that, he walked his formerly enslaved people right out of Egypt that same night. He wants people to remember what he did to deliver them. But we know from hindsight that what God did in Egypt was somewhat of a preview 
of, of what he would ultimately do uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem. So God did this thing to deliver these people in Egypt, but then he stepped over about 1400 years in time. And then he took another step over about 265 miles in space. And he landed in Jerusalem outside of Jerusalem on this hill that Christians we've historically called Calvary, where Christ died. The greatest thing that God has done to deliver was the death of Christ. Christ meal was the real meal. Before God in Egypt walked the people out and delivered them, he said, I want you to take this meal to remember this. Couple of thousand years later, Christ, before he died and delivered people, he took that same Passover meal and says, now I want you to do this to remember what I've done to deliver you. Christ's meal is the real deal meal. Christ's deliverance is the real deal deliverance. When when God took the people out of Egypt, maybe two million people who were Hebrews walked out of slavery to the Egyptians. On Calvary, because of what Christ did, billions of people throughout history and counting are still walking out of slavery from sin and Satan and death because of what Christ did. Christ's deliverance was the real deal. Not only was Christ's deliverance the real deal, Christ is the true Passover. Christ is the real firstborn. In Egypt, God struck down every firstborn of Egypt as a just punishment for the evil that the Egyptians had done for centuries. On Calvary, God struck down his own firstborn, Jesus, as a just punishment for the evil that all people in all times have done for millennia. Christ is the real firstborn. Christ is not only the real firstborn, Christ is the real Passover lamb. In Egypt, God said, I want you to sacrifice this lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and whoever's house is covered by the blood, I will pass over them with my wrath. On Calvary, God sacrificed his own Passover lamb, Jesus, and Jesus' blood was poured out for us. So not that we just are passed over by the wrath of God, but now we have peace with God and we're friends with God. Christ is the real Passover lamb. Christ's death is God's greatest act of deliverance. So that's what we remember. We remember the death of Christ. We come around the table to remember what Christ did to deliver us. You ever played tug of war? You know what I noticed about tug of war is that it's not neutral. It's all action. You're either making progress in your pull to where you want to go or you're being pulled to a place you don't want to go. It's never neutral. That's how life with God is. It's never neutral. You're either progressing into life with God that God has for us. You're being pulled into a place that you don't want to be. What's the place that you don't want to be? Um, Y'all heard me say this word before. Practical atheism. You know, practical atheism is that. The, the confessional atheist says there is no God. The practical atheist lives like there's no God. Christians do this all the time. How do we live like there's no God? Well, it starts with us thinking like there's no God. We forget God. Friends, I forget God all the time. This is why I stress at night and lose sleep over if we'll have enough to eat next month. This is why I stress and go into deep fits of anxiety over the political and social state of America, because if my side doesn't win, then I see no hope for a good future. 
This is why I lash out at everybody who I feels like has wronged me, because if I don't vindicate me, no one vindicates me. We forget God all the time, don't we? This is practical atheism. This is why it's important that we remember. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says what remembrance does is it pushes us into faithfulness towards God. When I remember what Christ has done to deliver me, I remember that Christ is present in my life. When I remember what he's done to deliver me, I'm living a life of gratitude. When I remember what he's done to deliver me, I'm living a life of presenting myself as a sacrifice. When I remember what he's done for me, I forgive as I've been forgiven. We've got to remember what he did to deliver us. Uh, you remember being younger when you play a board game with your family and they'd make you mad. So you decided you'd quit. Walk away from the table altogether. Um, I was the kind of kid that not only did I walk away from the table, I walk away from the table with the board game in my hand. <laughs> Middle of Monopoly, I just take it all money and everything and just go play by myself. And then after about 38 seconds of me trying to be all eight people, I realized, oh, this game was created for a group. This game was actually created for community. It only works when I'm at the table with other people. Friends, this, this practice of remembering, specifically coming together at the table, it's created for community. And it only works when you're with the group. Jeron, prove it. Exodus 12, who God give the instructions to? The whole congregation of Israel. He said, you take this at the same time, at the same meal, where the same things, remember the same things, this is a communal thing. A couple thousand years later, when Jesus reinstitutes it in a new way, he says, every time you, who's you? A community. Gathers. Who gathers? A community. Do this in remembrance of me. This practice of remembrance is created for a community. So listen to me. In a, in, a, in, a, in a time where societally we're reacclimating to gathering and some of us over the past 15 or so months might have gotten used to not gathering with God's people. Um, in, a, in, a, in a time where the thing that we do when we feel upset with God's community is to completely isolate ourselves from God's community. I want to talk to you about the danger of distancing ourselves. When you isolate yourself from the community, you're forfeiting the benefits that come from remembering. You can't remember alone. Not only because of the way God set this thing up, because of the way I'm set up. I forget. I'm not good at remembering to remember. So I need to be in a community that collectively remembers. I need to be in a community where even when I forget, someone's happy about what Jesus did to deliver us. And I need to be in a community that when I'm down in the dump, somebody's ready to celebrate what Jesus did for us. If you want to benefit from this practice of remembering, you've got to be in community. Always. So here's my one prayer for us based on this passage. I pray that we be people who prioritize this practice of gathering to remember. More specifically, I pray that we be a community that prioritizes gathering around the table for the Lord's Supper to remember what he did for us. 
Friends, listen to me. I love preaching. Every time I get up here, I'm going to give you 30 to 40 to maybe 17 minutes of my heart. But history tells me that the reason the church has gathered for 2000 years is not so someone can stand up, but so that we can gather around the table. This is why the church has gathered for centuries now is we gather to take communion with one another. We gather around Christ's table with Christ's people. This is why we're here. We're not here for any of us who stand up here. We're here for those tables. I want that to be our priority. This is why we take this with our children. Because this isn't just something we do on the program. This isn't something we just try to fit in. This is why we're here. And I pray, parents specifically, I'm talking to you, I pray this never becomes an activity where our children are bystanders. If our kids have believed, I pray that they participate with us. If they haven't believed, this is the perfect opportunity for us to preach the gospel to our kids. That's like God said to Moses, when your kids ask, what are we doing? Tell them why we're doing this. I pray that we remember. That's my sermon, but I'm not going to be done yet. Um, I can't be done just yet. There, There's some things throughout this passage that, I think the people included in their memories. So God says, I don't want you to forget to remember what I did to deliver you. But there are things that happened throughout this story that I think the people included within their remembering. And I think some of those things can also be relayed into our remembering of what Christ did for us. So I'm going to give you a few of them really quick. Write this one down. Don't forget to remember that God asked us to demonstrate our faith when he did what he did. Don't forget to remember that God wants us to demonstrate our faith when he did what he did. So God says, I want you all to put blood on your door frames and on your doorsteps, and then I'm going to pass by your house. Can we state the obvious? God didn't need nobody to tell him who was his. God didn't need that blood for God. That blood was for them. I read someone this week that they said what that blood was, was that was God asking the people to demonstrate that they actually believed that he would deliver them that night. God wanted them to show it. He wanted them to demonstrate it. Here's a better way to say it. God wanted them to say, I believe, with body language. So when I coached basketball at College Heights, I'd get ready to sub a kid in. He'd be over here on the bench being a nasty seventh grade boy, just all like leaned over and all this stuff. And I'd look at one of them. I'd say, hey, you ready to come in? And he'd be like, yeah, coach. And he'd be slouched over. And then he'd get up and he'd kind of mosey his way over. Not in a rush at all. Just taking his dear time, head down, not looking like he wanted to do anything. Then by the time he got by me, I just just put my hand on his shoulder and say, actually, sit back now. And he'd look and be like, coach, I said I was wanting to play. Your body language didn't show it. Your mouth might have said you were wanting to play, but your body language didn't say it. I'd prefer you to say it with your body language. This is how God works. When when it comes to belief, he prefers you to say it with your body language. He, he, He initially says, when you initially believe in me, I want you to confess it with your mouth. Yes, but right after that, I want you to say it with your body language and be put under the water and come back up. This is baptism. It's saying, I believe with our bodies. 
Not only is it initially, but throughout James, Jesus's little brother says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, I'll show you that I believe with my body language. Specifically, I'll show you I believe in God by loving my neighbor. More specifically, James says, I'll show you I believe in God when when my neighbor, my brother, my Christian sibling is in need and I have I share with them. Show me you believe with your body language. This is really important for us as a people, as we try to partner with God on this mission in the Midwest. In the Bible Belt. I heard someone say that uh, the Midwest or the Bible Belt is the hardest mission field in America. Why? You got to convince people who don't believe in Jesus that they actually don't believe in Jesus. You got millions of people who say, I believe in God. What's their body language saying? Their body language, they, they haven't stepped foot in the community of Jesus ever, maybe outside of Easter. Their, their, their hands are, are, are consumed with serving. Their hands are consumed with gathering for themselves. Their, their mouths sound like they've come straight out of hell. Their body language doesn't say they believe. I'd argue that there are some people that if their, their life was a silent movie, that, that their life would mirror someone who says they're an atheist. Their body language doesn't say they believe. And we've got to be people who, who, who know and who have this message. Hey, God wants your body language. God wants you to show it. I'm not talking about anyone in this room. Y'all are all perfect. We're all perfect. I'm talking about them. God wants your body language. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. Um, God brought about justice when he did what he did. God brought about justice when he did what he did. The elephant in the room is that in one night, God walked through Egypt and killed thousands probably of people. What do you do with that? What do you make of that? What does that say about him? I'd like to argue that it portrays God's commitment to justice. After all, we are talking about a whole society who had spent centuries enslaving this people. That's wrong. We are talking about a whole society who the word of God had come to multiple times to release this people and they doubled down on the slavery. That's wrong. We are talking about a society that didn't have one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, not eight, not nine, but ten chances by now to repent. At least. And they hadn't. I think what God was doing was repaying a whole society for the evil they had done. I think God was rightly punishing the wrong of a whole people. I think God was bringing about justice. I mentioned Tom and Jerry earlier. I think you remember those special episodes of Tom and Jerry where there was um, the little puppy dog. Uh, I can't remember his name, Tyke or something, little puppy dog. And 
Tom would come across Tyke in some situation. He'd grab that little puppy and he'd hold him upside down and just fling him around and do whatever he wanted to do. And that puppy's big old dog, Daddy Brutus, saw what was happening and walked over to Tom Bully and his baby and uh, rung Tom up by the neck, threw him all around. He, he beat down on his baby's bully. Christian, that's what kind of father you have. Your father beats down on your bullies. Uh, scripture tells me that we were bullied by Satan. Scripture tells me that we were bound by sin. It tells me that we were coerced by death. Scripture also tells me that when Christ died, he crushed the head of Satan. Scripture also tells me that when Christ died, he, he trampled over death. Scripture also tells me that when Christ died, he condemned sin in the flesh. Our God has beat down on our bullies when he did what he did. And if he did it then, Come here, everyone who's been wronged, everyone who feels as if they've been wronged in this life. If he did it then, if he brought about justice then, you can let him be the one to bring about justice in this situation now. You feel wronged? You've been abused? Something's been done to you in the dark? You feel like no one's there? No, 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 friends. Our God is a God of justice. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing goes unchecked. Nothing goes unignored. He sees it and he will bring about justice. Don't go away too quickly, though. Someone pointed out to me. The difference between this situation ending up in justice for Israel and Israel ending up in a situation of sin was that God was the one who repaid that evil. Every time we take it into our own hands to repay the evil that's been wrong done to us, I like to bet you end up in a situation of sin. You remember the Hatfields and McCoys? I grew up in West Virginia, so they taught us about the Hatfields and McCoys. They, they had this long feud. I think it started with one of the Hatfields feeling like the McCoys stole their pig. Then the McCoy, one of the McCoy boys went and he got a, a Hatfield girl pregnant and left her and the baby alone. Then one of the Hatfields and uh, the McCoys, a group of them got in a fight at a fair to where one of the McCoy boys were stabbed by a Hatfield. Then the, the, the McCoys went and, and tied up a bunch of Hatfields and shot a few of them. Then the Hatfields had a bounty on the McCoys. Then the McCoys ran through a Hatfield Christmas party and killed a couple of them. And it doesn't matter who started the situation because guess what? They were both in sin. what happens when we take it into our own hands to repay the evil that's been done to us. Don't matter who started it. You both end up in sin. One of the biggest moves of faith you can make is to let God repay the evil that's been done to you. That's first Peter. Isaiah 30, 18 says, our God is a God of justice and blessed are those who wait on him. This is the God who says, vengeance is mine. Here's the last one. Um, God recreated people when he did what he did. God recreated us when he did what he did. Do you notice like in the first verse, God said, you have a new calendar now. As of now, you just got a new calendar. 
this new calendar revolved around him doing the thing he did to deliver them? This is like God walking up to you and saying, look, I know today is June 13th. Um, at midnight, I'm going to do a thing. And so tomorrow's not going to be June 14th. Tomorrow's going to be January 1st, 2022. I read someone who said that God recreating their calendar was a, was a, was a tangible sign that he was completely recreating them. God, he completely recreates you when he did what he did to deliver you. Let me, let me give you a picture of what Christ did on the cross. So you've seen in science class, uh, um, a caterpillar go into a cocoon and become a butterfly. It became better. That's not what God does. It's more like a caterpillar going into a cocoon and coming out a human. Something completely different. Something completely other. Something completely new. Listen to me. Christ did not die to make you better. Christ died to make us new. Christ doesn't make better. He makes new. Christ didn't make a better you. He made a new you. Second Corinthians says, if anyone's in Christ, he's not a better creation. He's a new creation. He didn't die to make your life better. Romans 8 says, we now walk in the newness of life. Not a better life, the newness of life. He didn't die to make this church a group of people who are better now than we were before we started coming. No, Ephesians 2 calls us one new man, one new humanity. And Christ did not come to make the world a better place. He died to make the world new. Revelation 21 says there's a new heaven and a new earth. And right now, our Jesus says, look around at it all. I'm making it all completely new. He doesn't die to make better. He dies to make it new. He didn't die to give you a life that looks good within the American dream. He didn't die to give you a, a better feeling. No, he died to make you new. Everyone who's um, under 35, listen to me. Christ made you new. Subject, Christ, verb, made. Christ made you new. That means you live out the label Christ put on you and not the label they put on you. More specifically, we actualize, we actualize the identity Christ gave us, not the identity we or they gave us. If you're not careful, we'll look inside and say, okay, this is the label I'm going to put on me. This is who I want to be, and I'm going to give all I can to living that out. Or, or they've said, well, if this is my attraction, then that's going to be my label, and I'll give all that I can to live that out. Or if this is how I look, then that's my label, and this is going to be all I can to live that out. And also, if we're not careful, we'll think, well, these are the things that I do good, so that's going to be my label, and I'll live that out. Or these are the things that I'm going to do that I do bad, or that's my label, and I'm going to live out. Listen to me. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Never you have that temptation. You, 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 you look yourself in the mirror, look them in the face, look that demon from hell in the face and said, Hey, last time I checked, it was Christ who made me and it's what he made me. That's what I'm going to live out. Let me push it a little bit further and then I'm sitting down. Do you notice that those people just broad story, 430 years prior to our passage, they walked into Egypt as refugees. They spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And they walked out of Egypt with money, rich, gold, a bunch of good clothes. Refugee, slave, 
I'm delivered. Now we're rich. He completely elevated them on the social ladder. That's what he does. I'm not saying that when he delivered you, he lifted you up the American social ladder. I'm saying when he delivered you, there's a social ladder in heaven. There's a cosmic social ladder that God lifted you up on. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you were saved. And when you were saved, you were raised up and you were seated with who? With Christ, the king on the throne in heaven. He raised you up and seated you in heavenly places with Christ. He raised you up. This is grace. Oh, church, I pray that we know the grace of God shown to us. Some of you are so self-loathing, self-loathing. I pray that you know the grace of God. Listen to me. You are not a waste of space. You are not nothing. You are not a waste of time. You are not worthless. You are a product of the grace of God. Listen to me. Some of you are also super self-congratulatory. You did not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You are not a product of your own hard work. You did not get yourself there. You are a product of the grace of God. I wish we knew that everyone in this room had a clear understanding that our LinkedIn profile, our resume is the same as Paul's where it says, I am what I am by what the grace of God. Nelson Mandela in 1963 walked into a prison in South Africa. About 20 years later, he walked out. About four years later, the people put him into the presidency. This is what happened to us. When we were brought out, we were also brought up. God didn't just bring you out of hell. Listen to what the scripture says about us. It says you're a royal priesthood. We're, we're a holy nation. We're a people for his own possession. We, we, we weren't a people. Now we are people. Revelation says we, we reign with Christ now. Uh, Jesus says, I don't call you a slave anymore. I call you a friend. He calls you a friend. He calls you a friend. It says we're the very body of Christ. We're the house of the Holy Ghost. I wish you knew how far his grace has brought us. It's brought us up, not just out. My prayer is that we be those who don't forget to remember that. We don't forget to remember what he did to deliver us and all that came with that. More specifically, I just want us to be those who prioritize that table.